Hello, this is Martin Wolf, Chief Economics Commentator of the Financial Times, with my podcast. Big Risks for the Insurer of Last Resort, March the 5th, 2009. The UK government looks increasingly like a python that has swallowed a hippopotamus. In acting as insurer of last resort to the British-based banking system, it is taking on huge risks on behalf of taxpayers. If this turned out to be a global depression with huge losses for British-based banks, fiscal solvency might even come into question. Can this make sense? I doubt it. At the end of last year, total assets of the British-based banking system were 7000 £919 billion, or 5.5 times gross domestic product. These aggregate assets increased by £956 billion between the end of 2007 and the end of 2008, and by £4,493 billion, or by 130%, between the end of 2001 and the end of 2008. Royal Bank of Scotland alone accounted for 45% of this latter increase. At the end of last year, RBS had the largest assets of any British bank at 166% of GDP. These asset positions are enormous. It should be noted, however, that they include gross derivatives positions, which is not the case under US accounting. Net derivatives exposures were, of course, far smaller. RBS was a small Scottish bank that wanted to be big. It succeeded. Yet today, the market capitalisation of RBS is a mere £9 billion. Even this is only because the Treasury has not wiped out private shareholders. The bank is, in effect, nationalised. Taxpayers bear the cost of guaranteeing this fruit of megalomania, I must confess an interest. I am a depositor at RBS, and as such I am grateful. Implicitly, the UK government is guaranteeing the liabilities of the entire swollen UK banks. Explicitly, it seems likely to guarantee at least £600 billion of toxic assets of RBS and Lloyds under its so-called asset protection scheme. I am no populist, yet when I think of the sums earned by those responsible for dumping this mess onto the UK taxpayer, even my blood boils. RBS has definitely received £325 billion of insurance of toxic assets. The first 6% of any losses, £19.5 billion, will fall on RBS, with RBS taking 10% of the losses above this limit. The overall fee paid by RBS for this valuable insurance is about 4% of the amount insured. A part of this is paid in RBS shares, which are, to put it mildly, funny money. To keep this bear moth breathing, the Treasury has pumped in £25.5 billion of extra capital. My colleague, Willem Bouter, in his magnificent blog, states bluntly that, and I quote, like its American and Dutch counterparts, this toxic asset insurance scheme is without redeeming social value. It is inefficient, unfair, and expensive. Is he being too harsh? Not much. Clearly the biggest attraction of such a scheme to both politicians and beneficiaries is that its costs are removed from the public accounts. How large might these costs be? 
I understand that internal calculations of the International Monetary Fund suggest a fiscal cost of all UK bank support of 13% of GDP, or £200 billion. I suspect this is too optimistic. Certainly, together with the cost of the economic slump, an increase of well over 50 percentage points in the ratio of public sector debt to GDP is highly likely. Such are the wages of financial mania. They will be similar to the fiscal costs of a sizable war. Why should not more of the losses fall on creditors, other than the insured depositors? That is the question asked by many economists. It is the approach recommended by proponents of a good bank solution. The big point here is that the losses against which the government is now offering such generous insurance relate strictly to bygones. If we want banks to make new loans, it makes far more sense to guarantee those rather than bail out all those who finance the mistakes of the past. So, suggest the radicals, toxic assets should have been left with the shareholders and uninsured creditors of the old bank, who would also gain a claim on a clean new bank. Moral hazard would disappear, and taxpayers will be left relatively unharmed. The arguments against this are two. First, the possibility of a default would create a wave of panic worse than the one that followed the bankruptcy of Lehman last September. And second, for this reason, no individual government could dare to go it alone. Unlike Professor Bouter, I recognize that these could be valid arguments in the current circumstances. I certainly have no desire to make the dreadful slump even worse than it is. But if so, they have compelling implications. One is that we have to create effective mechanisms for orderly bankruptcy of very large financial institutions. Indeed, this is far and away the most important lesson of the crisis. Another is that if large institutions are too big and interconnected to fail precisely because they are bound to get into serious trouble together, then talk of maintaining them as quote-unquote commercial operations, as the Chancellor of the Exchequer does, is a sick joke. Such banks are not commercial operations. They are expensive wards of the state and must be treated as such. The UK government has to make a decision. If it believes that costly bailout must be piled upon ever more costly bailout, then the banking system can never be treated as a commercial activity again. It is a regulated utility. End of story. If the government does want it to be a commercial activity, then defaults are necessary, as some now argue. Take your pick, but do not believe you can have both. The UK simply cannot afford it. This podcast is available at www.ft.com forward slash wolf podcast. My columns are available at www.ft.com forward slash wolf. Goodbye.